You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. Maybe this sounds naive. I'm even a little embarrassed to admit it. But one of the reasons why I do this show is because I believe that history can make us better. What I mean is that if we really make an effort to understand the lessons of the past, we can improve as people and as a society. But all that depends on having access to history, which brings us to the topic of today's episode, a book called The 57 Bus. The 57 Bus came out five years ago, and it was written by a longtime Oakland-based journalist named Dashka Slater. The book is about a horrific incident that happened back in 2013 on an AC Transit bus. A lot of you probably remember this because it became a huge national story. What happened was a high school student named Sasha was asleep on the bus when another student named Richard from a different high school decided to flick his lighter at the hem of Sasha's dress. Sasha was immediately engulfed in flames and suffered awful, awful injuries, third-degree burns on both legs, among other things. Richard, who was only 16 at the time, was arrested the next day while Sasha spent months recovering. This would have gotten a lot of attention under any circumstances, but a few specifics of this case made it exactly the kind of symbolic conflict that the national media loved to latch on to. For one, Sasha, who is white and grew up in a middle-class part of the Oakland foothills, identifies as non-binary. Specifically, at the time of the attack, they preferred the term agender, meaning not male or female. And Richard, Richard was a black kid from the flatlands of deep East Oakland. His mom was only 14 years old when he was born. He'd already had some run-ins with the law and lost friends and family to gun violence before Richard even made his first court appearance. Comment sections uh, of the articles about this case were filled with people calling him a monster, demanding the death penalty. To put it simply, Dashka Slater's book is about telling both sides of the story, not to excuse anything, but to understand how and why it happened. And she does that brilliantly. But now, now this book, The 57 Bus, is being banned, which is exactly why I wanted to have Dashka on the show today to talk about it. Because there are a ton of great insights in this book about race and class, about how the criminal justice system is failing us as a society, and about what it's like to be a teenager who doesn't fit neatly into one of the traditional gender categories. But the intended audience, young adults, will never have access to these lessons if the book continues to be pulled from the shelves of libraries and banned from school curriculums. Obviously, what's happening with the 57 bus is part of a much bigger trend, 
Besides book banning, there are literally hundreds of anti-LGBTQ laws being proposed across the country right now. Not to mention actual physical attacks, like the Proud Boys' efforts to disrupt a drag queen story event at a library right here in the East Bay earlier this month. Look, I could go on and on about the threats, but I'll leave it at this. I actually do have one thing in common with the folks who want to ban books, like the 57 bus. We both understand that knowledge of history is power. The difference is that they want to take that power away. They're scared of the information in books like Dashka's, and you're about to find out why. This is East Bay Yesterday. I'm your host, Liam O'Donohue. Stay tuned. All right, I'm here today with Dashka Slater. And Dashka, before we get started on your book and the backlash to your book, can you tell me a little bit about your history? Like, how did you get into journalism and how long were you covering the Bay Area? I grew up on the East Coast in Boston. I moved out here for college and went to UC Berkeley and then moved into Oakland my senior year. And I had no interest at all in being a journalist. I was a poet and uh, was trying to write a novel and I needed some way to make a living. And I was very tired of, of all the crappy jobs I was working. So I began writing for the East Bay Express and which was then a very different paper than it is now. It was really about long form journalism and I learned completely on the job. And so, through the 90s, I was a staff writer there. I worked there for just about exactly 10 years, um, from 1990 to 1999, and covered everything under the sun that was East Bay related, but particularly Oakland related. Oakland was my beat. And so uh, when there's only two staff writers, you cover education and healthcare and land use and city hall and you know, whatever big event just happened, etc. So that was my background and it was the best training ground I could possibly have had to learn how to be a reporter and to learn kind of the deep history of this city that I love more than any place in the world. All right. So you're book, The 57 Bus, was published back in 2017. And for listeners who aren't familiar with the story, I'm wondering if you can summarize what this book is about. And I know that's a really big and emotional question, so feel free to take your time. Okay. So the story of The 57 Bus is uh, an examination of a crime that happened in Oakland November 2013. Two young people were taking the bus home from school on the 57 bus. Uh, one was a white, agender teen who uses they, them pronouns, named Sasha. And the other was a black boy named Richard, who was 16. And they attended different high schools. Sasha went to Maybeck in Berkeley, a small independent school, and Richard went to Oakland High. And during the eight minutes that their paths crossed, that they were both on the same bus, Richard set Sasha's skirt on fire. So Sasha's uh, typical dress 
was to wear a skirt and a t-shirt and a fleece jacket and a gray newsboy cap that was their kind of signature look. And Richard was traveling with uh, an older cousin and a friend that they had run into on the bus and lit Sasha's skirt on fire while Sasha was asleep. The skirt erupted into a big ball of flame and Sasha was very badly burned. Went by ambulance to uh, a San Francisco burn center where they received multiple surgeries for second and third degree burns running from calf to thigh. Richard was arrested at school the following day and was charged with two serious felonies, both with hate crime enhancements. Um, if convicted, because he was charged as an adult, he faced the possibility of life in prison. All of this happened in my neighborhood. Um, the 57 bus was the same bus that my own kid took to and from his high school in Oakland. And uh, Sasha lived in my neighborhood. Oakland High is my neighborhood high school. So it was all kind of as local to me as it could possibly have been. And so I started reporting on the story um, within a few days of the events with the idea that I wanted to tell the story from the perspective of both young people. Once you started reporting on that story, was it hard for you, because you said you wanted to get to know or, you know, tell the story from the perspective of Sasha and Richard, but that must have been challenging to accomplish because this became a huge national story almost overnight because of a lot of the uh, racial implications, class implications of the story, as well as, of course, the, uh, you know, hate crime situation that came into play because it was uh, assumed that this attack happened because Sasha presented as non-binary, right? So you're going into this national maelstrom of media frenzy. What was that like? And, and how did you gain the trust of the people that you eventually ended up interviewing for this book, which included basically all the, all the main people involved with this case? One of the things that I learned during my 10 years as a local reporter is that when you are somebody who's writing long-form journalism, you have one secret weapon, which is time. I did not have a deadline tomorrow. I didn't have one for next week. And so that allowed me to just keep showing up and wait for the frenzy to die down a little bit, uh, begin making relationships with the two families that were at the center of this story. And it took a long time. Um, you know, it took many months to get the trust of both families, particularly Richard's family, which had been almost immediately kind of burned by the, the news media, um, which used a, a quote from them in a very much out of context um, to paint them in a certain way. So, uh, so, you know, it was a lot about patience. And then, of course, at the beginning, you're just in there, you know, in the in the press, you know, big crowd of people pushing. I mean, I literally got at one point got like shoved, you know, to my knees by a camera trying to get closer to, to somebody. And, you know, it's the, the the sorry lot of the person who is a print reporter when you're around TV reporters who need to get their shot, you do kind of end up getting pushed around a little bit. Um, 
And then, you know, a few months later, it was just me in the courtroom mm. by myself. Uh, so, again, patience is a lot of it. Yeah. So you covered this case as it was unfolding, and then several years later, after the initial incident, you published this book. How was the initial response to this book? What did what did people say when you when you put it out in the world? You know, I had a lot of fear about this book. Um, I it, I published first an article in the New York Times Magazine, so I had had a little bit of a of a chance to see how people were going to respond. And probably most of my fear was before that article came out because I really wasn't sure at all whether readers were going to be receptive to a story that was told from both perspectives. And I was concerned that people would be hostile to one or both of the young people. And it, of course, there was some of that. There were in the in the comments, I think there were like 850 comments to that story. Right. And, I mean, there was people who were saying that even though Richard was a, a minor when he committed this offense, that he deserved the death penalty, right? For example, some of the... Um, commentary that was floating around online uh, was of that nature. Oh, absolutely. He was a monster. Lock him up, throw away the key, the key you know, just a very, um, people can be so strange in how much they wallow in their hatred for somebody who they perceive as having done something wrong. And, you know, I consider myself somebody who is on the left side of the political spectrum. And when I watch my own people do this, you know, are supposedly uh, nurturing, welcoming, anti-incarceration folks get very wrapped up in this frenzy of um, hatred towards somebody. It's interesting, disturbing to me. Um, so there was a lot of that. And then, of course, at this point, you know, this was now 2015 when the piece came out, uh, non-binary identities were still not very widely talked about in the mainstream press. And so there was, I was really introducing this concept to the readers of the New York Times magazine. And so there was, of course, people who were very um, affronted by the idea that you could live somewhere outside of the binary. Mm. But... Those both of those reactions were in the minority. In the most of the response to the article was uh, in the spirit that I had hoped it would be in, which was to have concern and care and compassion for both of these young people. So then, when I was writing it for the book, uh, I was writing for a young adult audience, and my big fear was that developmentally young people might not be able to do that, that they might not be able to live in a more nuanced shade of gray. I just didn't and know. what age range would you say is like young adult roughly? Well, yeah, so it's young adult, which means, you know, officially it's teens. Okay. And um, it's read now by younger kids. Um, I'm always surprised when, you know, sometimes I get letters from uh, some fifth grader, which... Um, it was not really who I was thinking about when I was writing, uh, but it's used in schools from generally about seventh grade through high school and then also in colleges. So um, the very first reactions that I had, I was doing, um, there, there was a group of high school students at a high school in New Jersey, kind of an affluent, mostly white high school. 
And they had gotten early copies and they were doing sort of, it was like a focus group almost. Uh, they were reading it and reacting and, and then I was going to Zoom with them. So um, I click on, my camera comes on and they're all there, this little group of high school students. And I introduce myself and this girl stands up and she says, I don't care what anybody says. I think if you set someone on fire, you should be set on fire. And I thought, oh, no, I have really miscalculated. <laughs> and uh, so I said, oh, you know, interesting. Uh, does What do the rest of you think? And to my vast relief, the rest of them did not share that feeling. <laughs> and we had a really amazing conversation. And I actually got letters from some of those students that are still some of the favorite letters that I have received ever from kids. And I get a lot of amazing letters. Um, because they they spent so much time thinking about the issues in the book and really were willing to live in this place of uncertainty of, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with these feelings, where I think you should not set anybody on fire. And I think that gender nonconforming people should have the freedom to live um, unbothered by random people. And Yet somehow through reading this book, I am feeling concern and care and interest in the story of Richard. And now I get that his motivations weren't what I thought they were when I started this book. And what do I do with those feelings? Yeah. And that feeling of uncertainty and being unsure of how to feel about something when you have two stories that are both compelling and the, peop the person who seems like a villain turns out not to be, that is exactly what I was hoping would be the reaction. I wanted kids to be able to go into this place of not knowing and not being sure what the right course of action is in a situation like that. And to feel what I think is the, the true feeling of thinking about justice in this country, which is, wow, this is really hard. It's really mm -hmm. hard to know how to act when somebody harms another person. So to get way back to your original question, the reactions that I got at the beginning and have gotten over the many years since have been mostly incredible as kids have been willing to, to go on this journey of um, uncertainty with me. Right. And we know that a lot of kids have been reading this book because it was, to my understanding, a huge success in terms of the critical response. It won all kinds of awards. The sales were uh, phenomenal. And it was being stocked in a lot of schools, or it is being stocked in a lot of schools and, and libraries, right? Yeah. So it was a New York Times bestseller. It did win a number of awards, including the Stonewall Book Award from the American Library Association. And also many others. But um, since we're in a California context, I'll say it also won the California Book Award and the uh, Beatty Award, which is an award for books about California um, from the California Library Association. So, you know, it's done extremely well and it's used in many, many classrooms. And the, you know, among my many fears was that there was going to be a backlash against this book that is about race and racism and gender and gender nonconforming people and gets deep into this question of justice. And I thought, you know, somebody's not going to like this. And 
for a long time, that was not true. I did not receive that kind of backlash. I'm not saying it didn't happen. I didn't hear about it. You were waiting for the shoe to drop, though. Yeah. I don't yeah. Know. <laughs> yeah. I just had a very meta thought, which is that... Um, this podcast, East Bay Yesterday, is actually used in a lot of classroom scenarios. I've spoken to teachers from everywhere on the middle school up to the grad school level who have incorporated various episodes of the show into their curriculums. So um, now maybe teachers are going to be using a conversation about a book that was being banned from school curriculums in their school curriculum, which is kind of like a snake eating its own tail type situation, I suppose. But... Uh, uh, on you know, uh, I'm we're we're you know laughing now, but this is a, not a funny matter at all because um, when the shoe did drop, uh, of course things got very ugly and and continue to be very ugly. So, what was your first inkling, or when did you first find out that people were trying to ban your book, and how did that make you feel, and and what were the reasons they were giving for why they wanted to ban it? So I get Google alerts for the 57 bus, uh, which are usually about my book. Sometimes they're about changes to a bus route somewhere. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so at some point, I got my first Google alert about an attempt to ban or remove from the curriculum uh, my book. And, you know, I had been sort of waiting for this moment. And of course, when you see other people with banned books, there is this thing that people always say, and I probably said, which is, oh, but it's really good for sales. You know, it's always publicity. And it turns out that it really does not feel that way. It mm. it doesn't feel cool at all. It how, how long ago was that first ban uh, attempt? That was probably, I'm bad with time because COVID yeah. has erased all sense of continuity, but I would say it was before COVID. Okay. So um, probably the first notifications I got were, you know, somewhere late 2019, early 2020. Uh, yeah. um, and then, you know, so the first one you think, oh, that's bad. And, and and where, do you remember where that was? What state or anything? I believe that was in Kansas. Kansas, yeah. And that one, it actually ended up, the, uh, the book challenge did not end up surviving. The My, the, my book one, the people rallied behind it. And so, you know, it felt terrible on the day that I got the alert. And, you know, when you read this newspaper article where people generally are misrepresenting what the book is, you know, that feels terrible. Uh, but in the end, in that case, my book survived and people in that community rallied to save it. And I have to say that that has happened probably more often than it hasn't. Um, book banning is fundamentally anti-American and it's fundamentally uh, feels wrong to almost everybody. And so I do want to make clear that we're in a terrible situation with book banning. It's not my book alone by any means. You know, my book is one of many, many books for children and young adults that have been targeted across the country. And most people, when they hear that, are shocked and um, and alarmed and also kind of believe it can't really be happening. It can't be as bad as it sounds. Um, it is as bad as it sounds. Well, and it seems like it could be getting worse. And I'll, I'll come back to that point in a second. But I just want to clarify why people are trying to attempt to ban your book, because it seems like some of the big 
kind of reasons that are floating around for various book bans these days are uh, books that are teaching quote-unquote critical race theory, right? Or books that talk about gender or LGBTQI plus issues. And I suppose there's probably various other reasons too, but what are the reasons why they're giving for trying to ban your book? And uh, you mentioned also that people were misrepresenting your book. So can you talk a little bit about that too when you answer that question? Yeah, so my book deals with race and it deals with gender. And... So it's kind of, in many ways, a prime target. What's been interesting to me is that it has mostly been targeted for the gender stuff. And when I say misrepresenting, uh, it's the big thing now is to say that it's pornography. And uh, so that's been used against a lot of books, including there's a book challenge right now in, in Nampa, Idaho. Uh, and so there's a lot of describing the book as being pornography. And I've also, a number of book challenges have talked about it being, you know, that there's poor language in it, which there is because it quotes teenagers verbatim from transcripts and, you know, shockingly, teenagers swear. So, uh, but, you know, so those are often sort of the thing, the two words that get used is that there's profanity in it and that it's pornography. The pornography to me, it's almost hilarious because... As someone who read the book, it's absurd to... I mean, there's absolutely nothing graphic or, you know, even sexual, really, in this book. There is literally no sex in it. Yeah. Um, and so what there is is a list of terms that talk about different gender identities, different yeah. sexualities, um, and different romantic inclinations. Yeah. And so uh, that's the most graphic thing there is in there, is just a list of words and what they mean. And those words are... Uh, not about any sexual act. They're just about different identities. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's illuminating also because it kind of shows what the what the fears are for the people mm -hmm. who are trying to ban books, that they feel affronted by the existence of these different identities. They feel affronted by anybody mentioning that there is another way to be in this world than... Right heterosexual and cisgendered yeah they want to hide these concepts from these kids that are seeing these concepts play out all over mass media everywhere constantly all day and all night so the idea that keeping your book out of a 13 year old's hand is going to keep them from finding out that they're non-binary people or trans people in the world it's ridiculous i mean and you would think also that if children are going to be exposed to these ideas, which they are, that they would get them wrapped up in the kind of context that you provide, which I think is really educational and really thoughtful and nuanced, as opposed to just um, something on TikTok or whatever, you know, which, you know, I'm sure you can learn some good things from TikTok, but uh, there's like a limited amount of context that you can provide in like a 10 second video or whatever. So it seems like kids are going to be learning about these concepts and a book like yours is a good way to do it. Um, how many different school districts or libraries have tried to pull your book off the shelf? I don't have a number off the top of my head. There's an amazing list that a librarian has put together of all the book challenges across the country and all the books that have been challenged and all the districts that have challenged them. So she tries to let me know when something happens, but that's pretty much the only way that I do know. 
is if somebody tells me or it gets coverage in the press. So, you know, it's on this big list in Texas of 850 books that have been challenged um, and pulled out of school libraries. Uh, so that's probably the biggest one. And then it's been challenged in many, many other school districts, you know, including here in the Bay Area. Um, it was challenged in Dublin. I don't know what the outcome was of that challenge. But even here in the liberal Bay Area, we are not immune. And it, this is, I think, a key point, is it just takes one parent. Mm. Um, you know, there are things happening at the statewide level where there are legislators, you know, so state legislature, state legislator in Texas who created this 850 book list. And it's at the statewide level that some of these anti-critical race theory laws have been right. passed. But it only takes one parent. And there, there's this group called Moms for Liberty that circulates lists of books that they believe that should be challenged. And so parents who are in this particular right-wing sphere can get this list, and then they can go to their school's library and see if those books are on the shelf, and then they can put in a challenge. School districts ought to have a procedure for when a book is challenged um, about how they will respond to the challenge. And it's, it's what is supposed to happen is that there is a committee of educators, librarians who look at the challenge and um, and then they look at the book and they look at their own policies and then they make a decision as to whether the book violates their policies. But of course, many districts either don't have a policy because they haven't dealt with this before or the administrator doesn't know the policy or people just freak out because it's nobody wants to be accused of having pornography on their school shelves. And so the difficulty is that often school districts, when this happens, they don't know how to respond. Hmm. And you, you mentioned that um, in a lot of districts, it only takes one parent to challenge a book, but that a lot of these uh, parents are connected through this Moms for Liberty group. Is there other kind of umbrella groups or like I, whenever I see campaigns like this, my mind immediately thinks that there might be some kind of astroturfing going on, right? Like a lot of these grassroots campaigns aren't as grassroots as they first appear on the surface. So are there bigger organizations funding these kinds of pushes for banning books or uniting these groups in some way behind the scenes? Well, Moms for Liberty, I think, would qualify as an astroturf group. Um, I haven't looked into their funding, so I don't want to speak to that. But they are nationwide. They are, you know, it is definitely top down. They are pushing this agenda um, down into communities. It's not coming up from communities. And at the same time, the, the this kind of iteration of the culture war is absolutely part of the Republican playbook right now. Uh, the culture of grievance has turned out to have a lot of power. And so this narrative that schools are in some way driving an agenda that is different from the agenda of families is a very powerful one and I think speaks to the fact that our, our culture is changing very fast and that narratives and stories and issues and perspectives that were absent from the uh, conversation and absent from education for a long time are now part of it. And that feels uncomfortable to many people. Yeah. And 
I'm sorry. I don't. I don't want to get too sidetracked by pointing out conservative hypocrisy because that's something we could just talk about all day. I'm sure, but I do have to point out um, an unfortunate irony of this whole situation, which is that while you know these religious groups and conservatives are saying that it's you know the liberals or the Democrats or whatever who are trying to indoctrinate kids or quote unquote groom kids, you know all these kind of weird QAnon pedophile theories that are floating around the internet now. While I was reading your book, I saw all these news stories about, for example, the Southern Baptist Church, which, had, which is going through a huge scandal right now of covering up child sexual abuse going back decades. Uh, we're watching the aftermath of horrific school shootings, where instead of saying, let's make it harder for you know, people to get assault rifles and then use them that day to blow away kids, uh, we need to arm teachers, put more... Uh, better better locks on school doors and all these ridiculous uh, quote-unquote solutions that, that seem like designed to do um, anything other than anger the, the lobbyists that pay these conservative uh, politicians who pair at their talking points. So um, I just uh, feel like since we're having this conversation about these, quote, these books that are supposedly dangerous for school children to learn, there are a lot of other dangers real dangers lurking out there that, you know, these conservatives are doing absolutely nothing uh, to confront. And I think there's a, a denial of the danger of not having access to books that speak to students' experience. And mm. I get letters from all over the country, from all kinds of kids, and those letters are always really, really moving because you just can see all the ways in which kids are struggling to make sense of, of their world. And a, a sizable portion of those letters are from kids who are somewhere in the queer umbrella. They are non-binary or they're trans or they're gay or lesbian or bisexual, lots of different identities and are often struggling with how to be who they are in a way that feels safe. And so the idea that those kids, that the safety of those kids matters less than you know, the, the safety of a, of a child of a parent who doesn't want their kid to know about the existence of trans kids or gender nonconforming kids, that's one that I, I have difficulty mm -hmm. accepting because I hear so much from kids um, and also from kids who are justice involved, um, you know, kids who have some, somehow been involved with the justice system, who are currently incarcerated or formerly incarcerated, or who have people close to them who have been in the system and for whom seeing their, uh, seeing a character like Richard represented also means something to them. Whatever the identity of a kid is, there is an importance in seeing that reflected in the books that they read so that they know that they are fine, that they're, that they're good, that, that their experience is a, a, a representative experience and is not something that they need to feel so solitary and alone because they haven't seen it reflected. So you were just mentioning that you get a lot of letters of support. What about trolls? Have you ever been personally contacted by, you know, some of the people that are trying to ban your book? I haven't. 
um, maybe really, really early on, but I wish they would. I mean, uh, you know, be careful what you wish for, but uh, I often feel that I could have a productive conversation with people who are alarmed by my book. Um, mostly they haven't read it, so they don't have anything specific to say. They just know what it's about, and um, and that's pornography in their view. But I do, because of, of course I empathize with parents who feel that they want to make good decisions for their children. Mm -hmm. I don't think that that is in it and of itself an evil point of view. And so it's possible to have a good faith, assuming good faith is, you know, assuming that there is good faith, it is possible to have good faith discussion about how you can protect your kids from things that you feel they are not ready for, while at the same time, allowing the freedom to read for other people's children, you know, and this is the piece that I think gets lost, is that if you don't want your kid to read a book, that's fine. That's within your rights as a parent. But removing it from a library so that no other child, no other family gets to make the same decision for or against um, to restrict the access of all children because of how you feel about your child, that I think is a hard position to defend. And my understanding is that some of these uh book banning campaigns are going even farther than trying to take books off the shelves. In certain states, I think Texas, Idaho, maybe some other places, they're even trying to criminalize teachers or librarians that might make these books accessible to kids. I mean, do you think it's possible that we're going to be seeing teachers or librarians getting locked up in the coming years for potentially giving a student a book like The 57 Bus? I don't think it's likely that that is going to happen. It's blatantly unconstitutional. But the fear of it has such an effect on the atmosphere in which teachers and librarians are working that it is very effective just to float that idea. You know, teachers and librarians both are exhausted right now. They have been dealing with two plus years of COVID trying to work in a very difficult set of circumstances with kids who are not doing well. You know, young people have been very much affected by the environment of COVID and are experiencing a lot of mental health issues. Teachers are as well, and they feel responsible for the well-being of their kids and very underappreciated by their communities and their bosses. Uh, They're underpaid and worried about their own health and all of these pre-existing conditions. And then when you come at them and say, we're gonna attack your curriculum um, in various ways and accuse you of you know, grooming children and distributing pornography and everything else, and threaten them with at you know, the most extreme arrest, um, but even just threatening people with you know, some crazy person is gonna show up in your library and yell at you, that's, or, you know, some parent is going to come to your classroom and make your life miserable. That's enough to make teachers and librarians less willing to bring books that might be deemed controversial into their libraries and classrooms. And that's what I'm seeing right now is I'm 
actually less concerned about the overt book bans, many of which get overturned because communities react, and more concerned about the soft censorship that happens when people feel accosted and afraid and unwilling to just add one more source of stress into their lives when they are already at the breaking point. I mean, that's when authoritarianism is most effective, right? When you don't need to lock people up into gulags. It's because people follow the rules for themselves because they know how far they can toe the line and and what could happen if they step over that line. So I use that fear to to keep people uh, on their on their best behavior. What about at the macro level in the young adult publishing industry? Are publishers stepping away from books that might be controversial because of racial or gender themes because they don't want to get tied up in lawsuits, book bans, controversy, uh, maybe a crazy person showing up at their office, all these kinds of uh, potential backlashes that could happen as a result of, of publishing a book like yours? So far, I have not seen that. I know that my publisher, which is Macmillan, has been extremely supportive. And the the publishers that I see who uh, publish books for children and young adults are actively working to support their band authors and their band titles and to support libraries and teachers and to try and figure out like, what tools can can they bring to to fight this. And it's it's a long-term struggle because these book bans are getting more and more extreme. You mentioned the attempts to, to criminalize the behavior of teachers and librarians, but uh, they are also going after booksellers now. So in Virginia, there is an attempt to wield um, a very ancient obscenity standards, a statute against Barnes & Noble for carrying two books that people are calling obscene, um, which of course they are not. And that attempt in Virginia is, is talking about criminalizing not only selling these books, but also owning them for adults oh and God. children. So not only are they coming after your libraries and your schools, but they're coming after your booksellers and your own bookshelves. That is terrifying. That is absolutely terrifying. To uh, borrow a phrase from from the other side, they can pry my books out of my cold, dead hands, you know. What about a light at the end of the tunnel? Like, if a book is banned, is there any way of ever getting it unbanned from a library or school district? Do, do, you, do you think that might happen? Could we go through uh, another swing of the pendulum where these books start returning to shelves eventually? I think so. Uh, I do think that, you know, kind of basic American values are, uh, we do have First Amendment freedoms embedded in our DNA. And I think that most people feel uncomfortable with banning books. Now, where you get into this murky area is that people um, have some pretty antiquated ideas about children and what is appropriate for children. And so you hear a lot, well, you know, I just don't think children should be, you know, hearing about sexuality yet. I think not understanding that sexuality doesn't necessarily mean having sex. It just is. And in that case, you better keep them away from Cardi B. You know? Exactly. I mean, it's yeah. like all the top yeah. singers and performers. And, you know, I mean, it's just like a joke, right? Right. And, so. you know, and, and uh, you know, children are products of all different kinds of families, you know, they, so that many kids are learning about sexuality, you know, because they have 
queer parents of different mm-hmm. kinds. Mm-hmm. Um, and that doesn't mean that, you know, th- th- that it's all about sex. It means that they, there's lots of different kinds of families. Yeah. So I think that the general feeling that you ought to be able to buy and read books of all kinds, that libraries should be places of inquiry where you can find information about topics that are interesting to you. Um, and you know, we were talking earlier, Liam, about how we both are, were people who grew up in libraries, that libraries were kind of refuges and places where uh, we found the books that were interesting to us. And I think that's true for many people. And that value in libraries is, I think, a, a commonly held value. So yes, I do think that books can return to libraries after they've been taken out. The issue is that people need to vote in their local elections because this is happening in school boards and there and library boards, which many communities have. Libraries are governed governed by an elected library board, and people don't vote in those elections. They don't pay attention to them. And so my hope is that as news of this wave of book bannings is happening, that people will start to pay attention to their school board races and their library board races and begin to reclaim those parts of local government. Right, absolutely. I have a lot of criticisms of, of the right, but they I've got to give them credit for being extremely well organized and, and very motivated as well. Um, sort of re- returning to the some of the content in the book itself, uh, there's a there's a theme of restorative justice woven throughout this book, um, but the case didn't end up being resolved in um, like a restorative justice uh, context. Can you explain a little bit? I think most people probably have some idea of what restorative justice means, but can you give like a little overview of of why you wanted to incorporate that in the book, even though it didn't end up getting settled that way, and maybe explain even to why it didn't, because there was a push for it at one point. Let me start by kind of giving a shout out to Oakland, which is really a, a epicenter for restorative justice work. We have a number of local organizations that uh, have been pioneers in restorative justice. We use restorative justice in Oakland schools, and we have a number of think tanks and nonprofits that are focused on criminal justice reform and using restorative justice as a tool. So. This case had both Richard's family and Sasha's family were approached by Oakland restorative justice people to say, like, would you be interested in doing this? Um, Would you be interested in trying to resolve this in uh, some way that involved restorative justice? And that was kind of outside of the legal process. And following it, it, my experience at the beginning was, what is happening that is slowing everything way, way down? Because the case kept on seeming like it was about to settle um, in a plea agreement, and then it wouldn't. And I knew that it had something to do with these restorative justice people who had kind of started showing up. And so what were they about? What is this thing? And so if you're not familiar with restorative justice, the difference between restorative justice and the punitive system that we have now Um, Our system focuses on laws and rules, and when a crime is committed, it's because somebody has broken a law or broken a rule, and the question is who committed the crime, who broke the law, 
and how should they be punished? Restorative justice focuses on relationships. And it says that when a crime has been committed, there has been a breach or a disruption of a relationship. And the question is, who was harmed? And what does that person need? And then who can take responsibility for a piece of that harm? And what can they do to begin to fix it? And so when you look at a story like uh, the story of what happened on the 57 bus, where there are two young people, both of whom were going through a lot at the time that they met and at the time that the harm to Sasha occurred. I think by the time you get to the end of the book, you feel like there has to be another way to resolve this rather than just punishing Richard. Like, what are we going to get out of out of punishing him other than him being punished? Like, he did something wrong, but surely there's has to be some other kind of solution rather than sending him away from his family for a really long time and having him be in an institution that was unlikely to give him the help that he needed for his own traumatic experiences because he had been the victim of, of gun violence himself. And so the reason I included restorative justice is because I was feeling that way. And I hope that the reader had that feeling as well, that there has to be a better solution. And I always like to say restorative justice isn't the answer to every question. You know, you, there are a number of factors that have to align. Um, it's a victim-centered process. It has to be what the victim wants. Uh, the person who committed the harm has to be willing to take responsibility and interested in doing the much harder work of fixing the harm. You know, a lot of people will say, I'd rather just do the time and have it be done with. So there's a number of preconditions that have to be in place. But when it works, it's a beautiful thing. Have you kept up with Sasha and or Richard since the since the book came out? Uh, for a while, I was in touch with both families. Um, it was mostly a one way of me like wanting to inform them about things that were happening. Mm-hmm. And now a, a fair amount of time has passed mm-hmm. and both of the young people are, are now adults mm-hmm. and they have gotten what I wanted for them and what they wanted out of the whole situation, which was for it not to be the defining event of their lives, um, for them to have a story that was unrelated to the 57 bus. And so they have kind of gone on to their, to live their lives. And mostly I don't hear from them. I, Sasha lives in my neighborhood. So occasionally I run into their parents and we have a quick update or something will come up and I'll need to get in touch. But other than that, uh, no. Yeah. Well, the the book ended on a, a hopeful note for both of them. So, you know, I hope they're both doing well. I want to ask about what you're working on next. I want to know if this process of being put on the banned books list has uh, influenced what topics or subjects you might want to pursue journalistically moving forward. So... You can say that I'm somebody who doesn't learn her lesson or (laughs) is hard to deter, Um, but my next book is going to put me right back into the crosshairs for sure, Um, which is a weird feeling to know that I'm going to get probably way more backlash for the next one um, just because 
times are different than when the first one came out. But uh, the next book is called Accountable. It's, again, a true story of a harm involving teenagers. In this case, it's a much larger cast of characters. It's about a racist social media account and both the uh, who created it and why and who was impacted and what happened and all of the fallout the, uh, from this one account. And it talks about a lot about racism and race, and that's going to make some people uncomfortable and make them feel that it doesn't belong in books. Um, it absolutely will get swept up in this discussion of critical race theory and other terms that have lost their meaning in our <laughs> national conversation. So, yeah, it's an uncomfortable feeling to know that there are people who are looking for books to ban um, and that kind of all the the goodwill that I put into a book where I am trying to write sensitively and compassionately and with clarity and rigor and honesty and all of these, you know, and ethically, all these values that I'm trying to put into my work so that kids can have meaningful discussions about the topics of our time, uh, that all of that is kind of ignored. And then just the fact that I am going to mention the existence of racism is going to make people, some people, want to restrict access to it. You're right. And that's why it's frustrating to hear, because, I mean, I wish I could disagree with you, but there's a lot of people who don't, uh, you know, read beyond the headlines or uh, think critically about what uh, people on Fox News or their politicians are telling them. So uh, good luck with that, <laughs> I suppose, because it, it sounds like it's going to get probably pretty, pretty spicy. Um, I want to bring this conversation full circle. We talked a little bit at the very beginning about how you started off your journalism career writing for the East Bay Express, and, and you wrote for them for many years. And I'm wondering, since this is a local history show, if you have any favorite stories from covering Oakland in, in the 90s that uh, pop into your mind that you uh, want to just reminisce about for a couple minutes here at the end of the show? There are so many. I loved my time writing about Oakland, and I talk about it a lot, um, particularly as Oakland has changed so much since then, and I feel this odd nostalgia for a time that was actually a really difficult time in Oakland. It was the time when Oakland was murder capital USA, and there was uh, a tremendous amount of disinvestment. It was extremely difficult to get anybody to bring dollars into a community that needed jobs desperately and investment. And so now we're kind of like we're in this weird mirror universe where now there's you know lots of interest in investing in Oakland and not very much interest in the people who uh, were already living here. So uh, which all of which has triggered some 90s nostalgia for me. Um, one of the things that I loved about writing about Oakland in that period was that I I kind of felt like I could go anywhere and find some piece of history, some story, some community that was interesting to write about. And, and I kind of had it all to myself because at that point, there really wasn't anybody else who was doing that. 
Uh, there was the Oakland Tribune, but they were very downtown focused. They didn't really go into the neighborhoods very much. There was the Oakland Post, but it was very small, and they were you know only able to cover a very few stories. Um, and so there was this uh, this wonderful feeling of openness. And so I usually spent two months on a story, and I would just kind of plop myself down somewhere, and something would happen. So one of my favorite stories that I did was um, about Lockwood and Coliseum Gardens right when they were the murder epicenters of the city, particularly Lockwood Gardens. And so there were some people there who were doing this gardening project of trying to encourage people to grow things in their front yards, um, bringing seeds and plants and gardening tools um, into a place that was called Lockwood Gardens, mm -hmm. um, but that didn't actually have any gardens and had in fact been, you know, really there was this you know intense East Oakland disinvestment and people were terrified to come outside because there was so much lead in the air that it, you know, people did not really want to come out of their homes. And so it was this lovely kind of social experiment of what happens when you start creating these little islands of other life that is not about the D-boys, as they were called then, the drug dealers who were uh, making people feel unsafe. Um, but who were also residents yeah. and, you know, and the, the sons and brothers of um, fathers and so forth of the people in the community. And in writing that story, I spent about two months there just going every day and hanging out and talking to people and people of different backgrounds and ethnicities were having these amazing conversations about food and, you know, what they were growing and how do you use peppers and, how, you know, all of that stuff that happens. Um, I got all these backstories about what it was like living in a place where dead bodies were found all the time. And so it was it was just an amazing story to do and and probably like the most up close that I got to that time of intense crime in Oakland um, and intense danger uh, where there was also this very resilient community that was trying to find its way to be um, amid all of this violence. Absolutely. And I think that that was clearly a very um, effective model for getting people outside and connecting because now you see community gardens all over Oakland. It's like not uh, uncommon at all to just like come around the corner and boom, there's another community garden all over the place. But 30 years ago, that certainly was not the case. Not at all. And I loved the symbolism of kind of what it's like to actually reclaim space. Yeah. Uh, that the actual dirt in front of your house um, mm -hmm. can be made to be yours and can be made to be fruitful. Yeah, as E-40 would say, lo loyal to the soil. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, um, is there is there anything else you want to say um, about this book? Because we did come here today to talk about the 57 bus, and it's an, it's an incredible read that I think has some really good lessons for, for young people, and so that's why I was so offended when I saw that People are trying to take it off the shelves because, um, yeah, I think that uh, these types of books are the only way that we're going to make progress as a society by, like, understanding the criminal justice system from the inside out, by understanding, you know, these conflicts from looking at both sides, by hearing what it's like to be a non-binary teenager in their own words instead of just what is being spewed from some, like, you know, right-wing Twitter account or something like that. Thank you for saying that. 
this book was the book of my heart. You know, it's a, among many other things, it's a love letter to Oakland, uh, which is you know, my, my home and the home of my heart. And I wanted this book to be an opener for conversation. And I think the saddest thing to me is that there are people who are trying to stop that conversation from happening. Yeah. Because really, I don't have answers. I'm just a reporter. You know, I don't, I don't have something that I'm trying to get people to do or believe. Uh, what I'm trying to get people to do is to have a moment to think and to talk about these big concepts. What is gender? What is justice? What is race? How do these histories push down on people as they are trying to live their lives? And so that's all I want is for people to have that space to think and to talk. Yeah. Well, Dashka Slater, I think that's a great message to end on. Um, your book is called The 57 Bus, A True Story of Two Teenagers and the Crime That Changed Their Lives. Um, it's available in the Oakland Library and uh, a lot of other libraries as well. And uh, if it's been banned in your library, find a way to get your hands on it because it's absolutely worth reading. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donohue. For everyone who's been asking, yes, I do have more boat tours coming up. July is sold out, but there are still a few tickets left for August and September, and uh, I'll be doing Richmond tours in the fall, like uh, October, November. Uh, those tickets won't be around for long, though. You can find a link at my website, eastbayyesterday.com. And while you're there, Hey, uh, if you could kick down a little donation, help keep the show going, I'd really appreciate it. Huge shout out to all the Patreon supporters uh, who are already doing it. Love you guys. Um, I could actually use a few more supporters to keep up with this inflation. So yeah, if you could spare a few bucks, hit that donate link. And uh, if you like this show, another cool thing to do to show your support is uh, follow me on social media, help spread the word, let everyone in your life know about East Bay yesterday. If you're telling one of your friends about the show, just grab the phone out of their hand, flip over to the podcast app, subscribe right then and there, uh, do whatever it takes. You will be my hero if you do this. I do it all the time. People don't mind, trust me. Uh, last but not least, today's music comes from Justin Lee, and uh, that's it. Uh, I'm actually going off the grid pretty soon for about a week or so, uh, going to the back country, unplugging from everything, so that'll be nice. But uh, when I get back, I'll be bringing y'all more stories of East Bay yesterday. I'll see you then.